We're in uh, the book of Jude, the book of Jude, and we'll begin in verse 17. So if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, please take your Bible and join me in turning to the book of Jude, verse 17. If you're uh, new here and maybe new to the Bible, Jude is the next to last book in the Bible. So if you get to Revelation, you've gone one book too far, just take a left and it'll be the page right before the book of Revelation. Before we read our scripture today, I want to remind us of the context, the, this overall series we've called Contend, because in verse 3, Jude urges the church to contend for the faith delivered to the saints, the once for all delivered to the saints faith. And he does that because there are there's some people who have invaded the church secretly, seeking to, to rob the church of its joy and really of, of the gospel. And so in verses 5 through 16, we really could have preached that as one really long message, but I divided it into, into three. But the, the point of verses 5 through 16 is, how do we identify these secret invaders, and why should we take action? Because they're, they're dangerous. They threaten the church, and they're headed for destruction. And so he's been talking about these people all the way through verse 16. And then in verse 17, there's this transition where he says, but you, beloved. In other words, now he's talking to the true church of God. And the word you is emphatic, but you all. This, this is what you do. So chapter, or excuse me, verse 3, contend or fight, strive for the faith. And then this long description of why we need to do it. And then back in verse 17, Here's how we contend. So verses 5 through 16, why we need to contend, and now in verse 17 through 23, how it is that we contend for the faith. Not just that we should contend, but how do we do it? And if you think about um, school, you know, the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, there's really three R's of contending for the faith that we find here in 17 through 23, and they are to remember, to remain and to rescue, to remember, to remain, and to rescue. Having said that, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God today, verse 17 through 23? But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. You may be seated. God, we ask in the moments to come that we would know how it is that we can contend for the faith that you have entrusted to us, your church. And we pray, God, that you would find us faithful in handling what you have given to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So to contend for the faith, three, three things briefly. We must remember that the apostles anticipated the rise of false teachers. Secondly, we must remain in the love of God. Literally, the command is to keep yourselves in the love of God. And thirdly, we must rescue those 
who are at risk because of the influence of the false teachers in the life of the church. So first, we must remember that the apostles anticipated the rise of false teachers. This is not a surprise. Jude has already told us that the Old Testament anticipates it, that Enoch anticipated it, and now he tells us, look, even the apostles anticipated it. And you should remember the words of the apostles to you. Biblically, the word remember is more than just calling something to mind. It's more than just reciting facts in our heads. It means taking meaningful action based upon what we are remembering. As Schreiner writes, remembering means that one takes to heart the words spoken so that they are imprinted upon one's life. It is important that we remember that false teachers and those who are trying to divide and to undermine the church, that the apostles predicted that this would happen. It, it shouldn't cause catch us by surprise. It shouldn't lead us to think that somehow God has abandoned us. It's going to happen. And praise God, if we belong to Christ, uh, we can remember not only in our own strength, but God has promised that when He sends the Spirit, the Spirit brings to our remembrance all that Christ has said to us. John 14, 26. So when Jude tells us or, or commands us that we must remember that the apostles have told us that people will come into the church and try to destroy her, we, we must remember that. We've got to remember because God hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't abandoned us. He told us it would happen. Paul, in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, to the elders from the church at Ephesus on the little island there of Miletus, says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, Matthew seven fifteen. Notice in Jude's account, he says that the mockers will arise in the last time. The word last there is the word eschaton. It's the word from which we get eschatology or the study of end times. Do you see what Jude is saying? In the last time, the apostles said false teachers would arise and they would come into the church and try to divide the church and undermine the gospel. Do you, you know what that means, right church? He's saying the times that the apostles predicted have now come in the life of the church. This means that we are living in the last days. We, we don't have to watch CNN or Fox News or read the newspaper and say, are we living in the last days or when are the last days coming? The last days are here. We don't need to track new moons, blood moons, the birth of red heifers in Jerusalem to know we are living in the last days. All we've got to do is see the preponderance of prosperity preaching that tickles itching ears. We see leaders enter churches and rip them apart over issues that have nothing to do with the gospel. We can know when these things happen, the apostles predicted it, and we are living in the last days. Satan is losing, and he doesn't like it. He is sending disruptors into churches to stop their momentum and get their focus off of Christ. And you can rest assured that wherever there is a church that is focusing on the glory of Christ and the urgency of His mission above every other thing that we would want to prioritize or value, those are the churches that Satan is sending his disruptors to. He's not concerned about churches that don't care about the glory of Jesus and the mission of God in the world. His, his target is churches where there are pastors and leaders and Sunday school teachers and deacons who want to declare the fame and the glory of Jesus above all else. All else. Those are the ones that he targets, and so... Uh, to the best of my ability, that's my desire. 
that we would prize the glory of Christ and that we would make his fame known around the world, period, full stop. Nothing else needs to get in the way of that. In other words, we're going to have a target on our back. And that's okay, we're ready, because we're walking through the book of Jude. As Aiken writes, the application for the church regarding such divisive teachers is clear. When you see them coming, don't let them in. When you see them within, get them out. This means, church, that church membership is in the Bible. It means that churches must practice and guard and cherish church membership. People have argued down through the ages, and it's very prominent right now. There's entire movements that say, well, we, just, we have participants in worship. We don't have membership. That's not in the Bible. People have argued there's no church membership, but the word Trinity isn't in the Bible either. But we wouldn't argue that God is not triune because you can't find the word Trinity in the Bible. The Bible does not command church membership because it assumes church membership in almost all of its commands. We can't fulfill the commands to pay attention to one another's lives, to encourage one another, love one another, to be accountable to one another if we have no way of knowing who's in and who's not, who's a part of the church and who's not. Biblically speaking, a church is its membership, and without a membership, there is no church, which is why I urge you Sunday after Sunday, if you've been attending and sitting on the sidelines and maybe even contributing, go ahead and become a part of the church family and say, hold me accountable for what God's Word asks me to do. In a healthy church, church membership is meaningful. It is a covenant commitment to God and to His people to be accountable for living out the Christian life in community with other people. It is a covenant to be faithful in giving, in serving, in worshiping, in discipling, and in holy living. It is to be accountable for living the lives that we proclaim that Christ has already given us. And it's to be accountable for living them out in the workplace, at the home, and at play, and to represent Christ well. And to repent and to be restored when we stumble along the way. Churches on the front lines of making a difference in Jesus' name must not have as members those that Jude calls mockers. People who laugh at the holiness of God and the perfection of God. We must not have as members people who claim to know Christ but are actually just following after their own ungodly lusts. Now, let's not be mistaken. I hope the church is full of people who are pursuing their own ungodly lusts. People who are mockers. People who are questioning, but they just ought not be members. We want for attenders all kinds of people who are far from God. People who don't yet know God. But the membership of a church should be those who have said to one another, We are not those who are going to mock the holiness of God. We are not those who are going to chase after our own ungodly lusts. In verse 19, Jude gives us another grouping of three terms to describe those who have invaded the church. They cause divisions, they're worldly-minded, and they're devoid of the Spirit. Aiken writes this, Satan loves to divide, rip, and tear apart. These evil emissaries follow their master. They cause divisions. They lack respect for spiritual leaders. And they make sport of moral conviction and lampoon theological distinctives. Oh, don't get, don't get too wrapped up in what the Bible says. And they can demolish in a day what it took a decade to build. This is not a new problem. Famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon back in the 1800s wrote this. The slightest violation of the divine law will bring judgments upon the church. The Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible is the religion of Christ 
church. But the imposters will come and they will sow discord and cause divisions over tradition, over programs, over history, over politics, and all sorts of things. But they will not argue biblically or theologically. Their argument will be grounded in emotion, tradition, history, but when it comes to the Bible and the glory of Christ, they will not have an argument. They are worldly-minded, verse 19, or merely natural. They do not understand godly wisdom, wisdom which turns the world upside down, wisdom that measures success not by the promotion of ourselves, but by the selflessness and the sacrifice of Christ our Savior. James writes this, they do not have wisdom that comes down from above, but a wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. How is it that they are demonic? They are devoid of the Spirit. They, Jude tells us they literally do not have, they are not having the Spirit. The moment that God rescues a sinner, they get the Spirit of God. This is not some, there, there are some traditions that say, well, you get saved and then you get this second blessing of the Spirit later. That's, that's not the biblical witness. From the moment that you surrender your life to Christ, you have a relationship with God, a favorable relationship with God. You know the indwelling presence of God, the fullness of God, and He empowers you to not like sin anymore, but to hate it and to want to resist it in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have fellowship with the Spirit, conviction when you sin, joy when you fellowship with God's people, and when you read the Word of God, and when you sing the Gospel, if you don't have an eager anticipation of being together with God's people, then very likely you do not yet have the Spirit of God. And Paul says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. To contend, therefore, we need to remember that God has not been caught by surprise. Secret invaders are not a sign that God has abandoned us, but rather that Satan is at work. And this morning, if you, if you come to church, but you, you lack the joy of the Lord, and you, you don't have genuinely the fellowship of the Spirit, I want to encourage you this morning, consider, as, as Paul says in Corinthians, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Perhaps today is the day of salvation for some who are here, but really still don't have the Spirit. Secondly, we must remain in the love of God. We must remain in the love of God. Jude, in verses 20 and 21, tells us that we he commands us to keep ourselves in the love of God. Jude keeps on reminding us in this entire letter that we are beloved or that we are loved. In verse 17, he writes, but you, beloved. In verse 20, he writes again, but you, beloved. In verse 1, he says we are beloved in God the Father. In verse 2, he prays that love will be multiplied to us. In verse 3, he calls us beloved. Then in verse 21, he gives us this command to keep ourselves in the love of God. We must not let, church, the, the certain toil of spiritual warfare rob us of God's love. Here's what Jude is saying. Yes, you must fight. Yes, you must identify. Yes, you must be cautious on the one hand. But on the other hand, don't forget that you are the objects of God's love. On this Father's Day, I want to speak for a moment to those Christians who are here struggling to know the love of your Heavenly Father. If you're truly in Christ, God's love has not left you, no matter what 
struggles have come your way. It is there for us to know and to experience and to remain in. To remain in God's love. Jude gives us three participles that describe the activity of keeping ourselves in the love of God. The command is keep yourselves in the love of God. And then he gives us the three elements of how it is that we do that. Well, that sounds great, Pastor. That sounds great, Jude. I would love to keep myself in the love of God. How do I do that? Well, here's the three ways you do it. First, building. Second, praying. Third, waiting. The first aspect of remaining in the love of God is that we constantly build ourselves on the foundation of our most holy faith. Verse 20. We must constantly grow in the scriptures. Paul says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And Jude says, the foundation is the most holy faith. Well, which is it? Is it the faith or is it Jesus? Yes, it's both. We cannot build our lives on the true Christ unless we are building our lives on the faith revealed in the Bible. The problem for many is they think they're building their lives on Christ, but it's, it's not connected with the most holy faith revealed in God's word. So if you tend church sporadically or engage in biblical truth erratically, you're not going to know the love of God. Knowing the love of God and remaining in it requires a constant and vigilant and ongoing process of building, that is constructing your life on the foundation of the faith. You cannot neglect the work of building your life on the faith and expect to know the love of God. Let me, let me say that again. We've got a lot of people who who's claim to have trusted Jesus, and then they go to church at Christmas and Easter, or maybe once every three months, and they go, well, I just don't feel the love of God in my life. Well, it, that's not a big surprise. You, you've got to be constantly building your life on the foundation of the most holy faith. Why do we have church every Sunday? Why do we hear sermons about the gospel? Why do we sing and rehearse the gospel week after week after week? Because that is one of the primary ways that God has given to us to keep ourselves in the love of God. So often we associate love with our feelings, with our affections, that we forget that remaining in God's love has as its source, not our feelings, but the reliable word of God. The love of God does not have to wait for a retreat. It doesn't have to wait for your Christian song to come on the radio. It doesn't have to wait for a revival or a mountaintop experience. We have, we have so sold short knowing the love of God in the Christian life. It's like, well, if I could get away for a week, then I could know the love of God. No! You can know the love of God right now. Build yourself up in the most holy holy faith. To remain in God's love, we feast on God's truth. Second, we must pray in the Spirit. Jude is not talking about a special type of prayer. He's not talking about praying in tongues. He's talking about the overall pattern of life of a believer, which is to be saturated with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 6.18 says, pray at all times in the Spirit. And be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. To pray in the Spirit is to pray in accord with what the Spirit desires. How do we know what the Spirit desires? We read what the Spirit has written. What did He write? He wrote the Bible. In John 16, Jesus says this, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you in all truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, 
But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now listen to this, verse 14 of John 16. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. In other words, God sent the Spirit to glorify the Son. So if you're in a church that talks about the Holy Spirit glorifying the Holy Spirit, they've misunderstood the role of the Holy Spirit. I've heard it said of Southern Baptists, well, they don't talk about the Holy Spirit enough. The Holy Spirit is very important. The Holy Spirit rescues us. He communes with us. But at the end of the day, the place where the Spirit dwells is the place where Christ is magnified. The work of the Holy Spirit is not to exalt Himself, but to exalt Jesus. Are you all here this morning? We make much of Jesus. The evidence that the Spirit is operative and at work in the, in the body of Christ is that the body of Christ is consumed with the glory of the living Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God prompts us to do that. So to pray in the Spirit is to pray that Christ would be magnified, that Christ would be exalted, that Christ would be glorified. It is to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. It's to confess our sins and seek forgiveness. How? Through the blood of Christ. It's to have the courage to live out God's truth. Why? For the glory of Christ. It's to pray that the glory of Christ would be displayed and declared through His local body to declare that the gospel is our only hope. The gospel is what? That Christ came low in order that we could be brought up into the love of God our Father. Prayers in the Spirit are prayers which flow from meditation on God's truth, that work of building our lives up on the most holy faith, and they are consumed with a passion for the glory of King Jesus. Those are the churches where the Spirit dwells and works and operates. And thirdly, the third thing we must do to keep ourselves in the love of God is to wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So we must build... In order to remain in the love of God, we must pray constantly in the Spirit to remain in the love of God, and then we must wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Schreiner says this, those who take their eyes off of their future hope will find their love for God slowly evaporating. It will be evident that their real love is for this present age. As a pastor, I've found that everyone is looking for something. We live our lives anticipating something. As young parents, we were looking forward to the day that our daughter could talk. As somewhat older parents, you got it. Some of you are looking forward to the next promotion. to finding that perfect soulmate. Many of you are enjoying what you are already looking forward to, retirement. Some to finishing off that next home improvement project. Some to polishing off that next degree. And most of you in this room are now old enough to know that all those anticipations fall short of what they promised. But there's one thing that we can live in anticipation of that's going to be better than we could ever imagine. And that's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The default setting of the human heart is living in anticipation of something. But church, God has given us something 
to live for, which is greater, infinitely greater than anything else you've lived your life in anticipation of. And it is that thing in which we live for and look to that should frame every other anticipation we have. We should not segment our lives into our secular lives and our holy lives on Sunday, but everything we're anticipating in work and in career and in life and for our kids and everything we're praying for, for their spouse to be a godly woman or a godly man, everything we're living in anticipation of should be for the fact that we serve a king who came and is coming again. To remain in the love of God, we must live for the return of Christ. And notice when He comes, He will give us mercy. It's not that when He comes, we will deserve to get into heaven. We won't say, look, I I did everything perfectly. I lived for you perfectly. I I did everything great. We We will still know on the day that He returns that we deserved the judgment of hell. But because of what Christ did for us, we were mercifully delivered into eternal life. Even on the day that He comes, we will need His mercy. Notice what Jude has done for us here. Notice the triads. To remain in the love of God, meaning the Father. We must be building our lives on the most holy faith. Praying, how? In the Spirit. And waiting with certain hope for the return of the Son. Do you see it? It's very Trinitarian. We don't find the word Trinity in these verses. But he speaks of the love of God the Father. He tells us to pray in the Spirit. He tells us to wait for the Son. He tells us we must build and we must pray and we must wait. And we have the the triad of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. You want to know how it is that you remain in the love of God? How it is that you feel and sense the love of God? You build your life on the most holy faith. You pray constantly in the Spirit and you wait with eager anticipation, not for your next retirement check or your promotion or whatever else it is you're looking for, you look for the return of King Jesus. That's how you stay in the love of God. And finally, we must rescue those whose lives are at risk because of the influence of false teachers. Jude has told us not to be surprised by the secret invaders, but how do we address those who are are becoming victims of the the false teaching and of the divisive nature of those who infiltrate churches. First, we must deal gently with those who are doubting. Verse 22. As those who've received mercy from Christ and will receive mercy on the day that He comes, we should be those extending mercy to those who are doubting or struggling with the truth of the gospel and how it applies in our lives. Those who've been sold a bill of goods by the latest prosperity preacher may not actually be lost. They may be wavering and need to hear the truth. Those who've been led to think that belonging to Jesus means that their sin doesn't matter may need a friend who will come alongside of them and mentor them in the fundamentals of the faith. In a world of false gospels, we must be ready to graciously and kindly, mercifully minister to those who are being led astray. North Roanoke, we want to be a church who is ready to receive the refugees who remain when the experiment of reducing the most holy faith down to just a mere moment of entertainment, emotion, or elevation with little to no biblical truth is exposed for the sham that it is. And it's happening every week. Second, we must act quickly to rescue those who are in danger of the fire. The fire here means the fires of hell. 
Jude is saying, these people are headed for hell if there's no course correction in their life. It's the 11th hour. If no one graciously confronts them with their sin, if we all sit on our hands and say, well, I I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. If no one interrupts their life and confronts them with the direction of their life and tells them to repent, they will be lost and it will be shown that they never actually believed in the first place. Hell is not a popular thing to hear about, is it, church? But is it not important that we do hear about it? It's real. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said this, If I had my way, I would not send my workers to four years of college. If I had my way, I would not put them through three years of seminary. If I had my way, I would put all of my workers in hell for five minutes. That would be the best theological training they would ever receive. Oh, church, if we could see the terrors of hell. If we could feel the flames. Would we not hasten to interrupt the lives of those who think they have Jesus but have no time for Him? Would we not want to confront them with the truth of what awaits When we see a member of the church running into sin, we ought to run to rescue them, snatching them from the fire before it's too late. Church, our job is not to air condition people's way to hell, telling them Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, but just go live your life the way you want to. We can feed people, we can clothe people, we can dig wells for people, but we must not neglect to share the gospel. We've got to be real about the fact that God's wrath is coming toward unrepentant sinners. Why? So they can run to Jesus and be saved before it is too late. And finally, we must deal carefully with those who are defiled. Even their garments are defiled by their flesh, by their fleshly activities. We, we've got to... We've got to hate what is happening. We've got to fear that we would ourselves be contaminated. And I I don't know what you think about when you think about defiled garments, but I think about my eighth grade gym class. And the boys who would take pride in the fact that they had their little gym uniform that you had to put on, and they would go an entire year without taking that joker home to wash it. I mean, it was just really, really bad. And, and I hated the defilement of those clothes. And I, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. Do not want to be near that gym outfit. This is a picture of what Jude is saying. You, you, you still want to rescue, but you must be careful how you rescue. We must show them mercy, but don't get too close For even their clothes can defile you. It's good to attempt to rescue those who seem too far gone. But be careful, Jude says. Don't tolerate the sin. Don't accommodate it. Don't think that you can go in there and not risk being consumed yourself. You better be full of the Holy Spirit. You better go in there with the right attitude. Brothers and sisters, it's a lie from Satan that we can live like the world and belong to Christ. It is likewise a lie that we've got to live like the world to reach those who are far from 
Christ. We don't have to live like the world in order to reach the world. We don't have to drink what they drink. We don't have to live where they live. We don't have to listen to what they listen to. We don't have to watch what they watch in order to reach the world. We must prize God. We must live in and remain in the love of God. And it is that which will, like a moth to the flame, bring people with desperate, hurting hearts up into the kingdom of God. And there are some here this morning who no doubt were here on Sunday, but were planning this afternoon to go run right back into the world as if it does not matter. Don't let another Sunday go by when the love of God the Father for you was right there for the having. Stop living a divided life where you come on Sunday and then on Monday through Saturday, you live as though Christ makes no difference in your life. Let today be the day that you begin to build your life on the most holy faith. Let today be the day that you actually have the Holy Spirit and you can pray in Him. And let today be the day that you surrender your life to the living Lord Jesus Christ so that you may know forever the love of your Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me? King Jesus... We thank you that you came. We we thank you that you are ruling, that you are reigning. And God, that you are still rescuing people from the fire through the proclamation of the gospel. We ask, Lord, that you would use North Roanoke Baptist Church to stand guard at the very gates of hell. God, that you would find us preaching the gospel in places and among people who have no hope. And God, that you would interrupt their sin-ridden lives with the truth that Jesus saves. God, in a room this size, we've got family, we've got friends who've been pretending. And God, there are people even in this room who've been pretending. God, there's no doubt some who are, are very likely headed for the fires of hell, but today could be the day. God, I pray that you would save for the glory of Christ. And in His name I pray. Amen.